I just felt really scared and shy and the world is not a safe place. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was a, pretty much a full-blown drug addict, mostly cocaine and speed. And my life had become an absolute train wreck. One week that I, I didn't eat the entire week, you know, he didn't really understand. And I was pretty good at hiding it too. It's a solution to pain. You know, if you're depressed or anxious or lonely or sad, uh, feeling hopeless, there's nothing wrong with wanting to get out of that state. It's, it's how you go about scratching the itch. And so I believe addiction is uh, caused by mostly trauma. It's a response to trauma. And we live in a bit of a culture that has a lot of seductive ways to increase dopamine from internet to porn to gambling to gaming to food to drugs alcohol joe polish's life journey is a remarkable one from being a former carpet cleaner struggling with addictions and living in poverty he defied the odds to become a millionaire before the age of 30. as the visionary founder of genius network he has created one of the most exclusive groups for entrepreneurs worldwide okay how many of you would never raise your hand no matter what question you're ever asked okay joe's unique gift lies in his unparalleled ability to connect with people from all walks of life. Leveraging his networking prowess, he has brought together industry transformers and global leaders, including renowned figures like Tony Robbins, Richard Branson, and addiction expert Dr. Gabor Mate. With such remarkable connections, Joe is often regarded as one of the most influential and connected individuals on the planet. Drug use disorders are affecting a staggering number of people worldwide, with approximately 36.3 million individuals grappling with dependencies on drugs and other substances. Joe's story of overcoming personal challenges and achieving extraordinary success serves as an inspiring example for those facing their own struggles. And this guy bust into the, literally just bust into the apartment where we're at with a can of lighter fluid and start spraying lighter fluid all over the freaking house like I'm gonna fucking torch this place. Alcohol is a major risk factor for more than 200 diseases and injuries including liver damage, cancer, and mental health disorders. The best thing I know how to do is to bring people together in communities because the opposite of addiction is connection. Almost all addictions involve binging and purging. It's either excess or it's deprivation. So for instance, my core addiction was uh, sex addiction. In this episode, I have the privilege of sitting down with Joe to dive deep beneath the surface of glitz and glamour and what unfolds is a remarkable story of resilience, love, and unwavering determination to create a positive impact. It's, it's like sitting with someone who's dying and you want to be able to fix them and you want to be able to help them and you want to be able to take the pain away. Joe's journey is one of defying all odds and embodying both success and compassion. I want to be a hero to people that are entrepreneurs because I think they're the ones that are responsible for providing jobs, creating tremendous innovations, and I want to help people that struggle with addiction because I am both of those things. Hi, Joe. How are you? I am doing uh, wonderful. How are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in Arizona. Doing, uh, You're in Dubai. It's like across the world, but you know, I'm doing good. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing about the digital age, right? We can be anywhere in the world and still be able to access each other. Yep. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Be That Life podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good to be here. So, Joe, I want to ask you something really related to your childhood days, your early days or early years. Um, kids really begin forming explicit childhood memories around the two-year mark. 
And then the majority of their implicit memories really start to develop at the age of seven. All right. Now, I'd like to take a step back to when you were at the age of seven and really start talking to me about your journey at that age and then progressing from there. Well, you know, just just so you'll know, my childhood is mostly a blur, just uh, a few handfuls of memories. The, I remember my mother died when I was four years old. So she was a former nun and she had left the convent because she had gotten ill. And I have uh, one brother who's four and a half years older than me. And I have no memories prior to the age of four, except a slight memory of some group where we were in Texas and there was a pinata that was hanging from a tree and there were a bunch of kids, I think, hitting it with a bat, trying to bust open this pinata and get candy out of it because that's what a pinata is. It's, and other than that, just a very vague memory of that. And then I remember seeing my mother in the hospital when I was uh, four years old. Uh, and I don't know if it was the day before she died, a week before she died, and she had tubes in her nose and she was talking to me and my brother uh, and saying something along the lines of, listen to your father, I love you. Um, and, and, and of course, some of these memories come to me from just a note she had left too. So I can't tell if my childhood brain really in, interpreted that. I, I vaguely remember it. And then I remember seeing my father outside the hospital uh, leaning against a tree crying, bawling his you know, head off and not really knowing what to do because, and I, and again, at that age, I had no understanding or comprehension other than life became very scary to me at that point in time. Cause you know, my father was not, uh, he was not okay. Uh, I didn't quite know what that meant or why, but I just knew life didn't feel very safe at the time. And so my whole childhood was one mostly of, of being scared and shy and introverted. And as far as seven years old, uh, vague memories of that. I mean, I remember going to kindergarten in Apache Junction, Arizona, which is in the Phoenix area. For people that wouldn't know, it's a little small town next to Mesa, Arizona. And I remember some kids stealing my baseball cap, and that was really difficult. I remember a teacher physically washing my mouth out with soap. They used to do that back then, shoving a bar of soap in my mouth, um, playing in rocks, the desert lizards you know things like that but very very vague memories and seven years old i guess we probably moved to back to el paso texas which is where i was born um and then from after seven years old we moved to a small town called alpine texas so uh, during my entire childhood every uh, year to two years we would move because my father was tormented from my mother uh, dying and never felt comfortable anywhere so we would move a lot in his uh, and it was unfortunate because uh, he never really recovered from he you know he lost the love of his life uh, he was a locksmith so we didn't make a lot of money half half of my childhood we lived in mobile home parks and trailers and then you know uh small houses and things like that but it was uh uh yeah and then you know after the eight between the ages of eight to ten i you know had I started getting uh sexually abused and molested. I don't mention the person's name. Uh, it's just, you know, it was a male and it was, uh, that, that became, I think one of the reasons I blocked out a lot of memories, uh, cause there was just a lot of, uh, 
you know, angst and pain and trauma. And yeah, it was, it was very shitty. It wasn't a very enjoyable childhood. I mean, I certainly had times where I would ride my bike and I would try to make friends, but I was a super shy, introverted kid. And right when I started to establish some friendships and some relationships, we would uproot and move to another town. And that was very difficult on me. It was difficult on my brother. And, it, you know, also my father, which he, when you're a kid, you don't really kind of understand any of that. But looking back, you know, he would establish a clientele uh, being a locksmith. And he was very a hardworking guy. Uh, probably workaholism was one of the ways he coped with just the pain of his life. And, you know, he just never felt, you know, he felt betrayed. Uh, he was, my father, you know, was in the army. Uh, he had an honorable discharge because he had uh, broken his right leg and injured it real severely several times. So he was on pain medications, uh, constantly dealing with the VA, the Veterans Administration, and just was drafted when he had a really good job uh, in the you know, steel mills in, in Pennsylvania, which is found, you know, there were a lot of, you know, people working in the steel mills and, you know, coal miners and things like that, which is what most of his brothers were. He, my father had uh, nine brothers and sisters, so he came from a big family. Uh, so, you know, he, he would build these businesses and he'd uproot himself and we'd go somewhere else. So it was a, a very, what's that word? tumultuous childhood. I don't think I'm saying the word right, uh, but it, it, it just was not good. I mean, I, I cannot look back in my childhood and find much of anything from teachers or uh, people that helped me with self-esteem or feeling good about myself. I just felt really scared and shy and the world is not a safe place. And it was pretty dark. And so that later led to, you know, when I, we finally moved to back to the Arizona area I uh, lived in, you know, a place called Deming, New Mexico, where I think I went to fifth and sixth grade and then came back, came to Arizona. And then I started going to junior high school and then high school. And, and, and during that period of time, I, uh, I became a uh, started doing smoking pot and doing drugs. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was uh, pretty much a full blown drug addict, mostly cocaine and speed. Uh, but I was drinking and getting high and doing that on a regular basis. And my worst state was when I was 18 years old. I was, uh, I'd become a, you know, after, after graduation, which I did not graduate. Uh, I graduated high school, but I never walked in the ceremony during the night of my high school graduation. I was in the backyard of a friend's um, uh, house that happened to border the, football stadium of Dobson High School, which is where I graduated from in Mesa, Arizona. And I was anti-authority. I was like, screw this. I didn't want to walk. And I, we were freebasing cocaine uh, from the backyard of this guy's house, uh, watching my high school class do the ceremony. And that was, uh, so three months after that, after I, I, I was literally doing drugs every single day and my life had become an absolute train wreck. And so that's when I was, you know, I weighed about 120 pounds on average. And when you're a male at 5'10", uh, you know, is my height and you weigh 105 pounds, it's skinny as a rail. And there was uh, yeah. one week that I, I didn't eat the entire week and I, my weight had dropped as, uh, to 105 pounds because I remember getting on the scale where I was just so messed up and I had been just doing speed and coke and 
snorting it and smoking it. You know, that's what freebasing is the whole week. Where was your dad? Where was your dad during this period? He lived, uh, he lived in Chandler, uh, I, not too far away, maybe a 15 minute drive from where I was living with, a, you know, a couple of other guys and he just, you know, he didn't really understand. He didn't really know. And I was pretty good at hiding it too. Uh, I don't know how he didn't know. I mean, uh, he probably did. Maybe he just didn't quite understand it. I mean, he had to be going through his own, you know, we're, we're a family that was traumatized and never really had any good help. Uh, not that the help maybe would have been there, but didn't know how to seek it out. And, you know, you're talking, this is back in 1986. And in my father's generation, it wasn't like a thing for people to seek out a therapist. And if there was a woman involved, if he had ever gotten remarried, that might have added a different element, but he never did. He never remarried. He lost the love of his life and he never got over it. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a bit of a sad situation. Uh, now the, on the positive side, uh, that led to, you know, I mean, I still didn't recover, uh, from addiction right away. It took a long time. I eventually w looked at myself in the mirror and I looked like a, a skeleton and there was one of the pivotal moments was I was living with, uh, my brother and another guy, uh, who was, uh, you know, everyone was doing drugs like all the time. And when you're a drug addict, you hang out with other drug addicts. You're you, whatever lifestyle someone's into, they seem to have relationships. Did your brother start doing that before you started doing it? Or was it just pretty much at the same time? Yeah. He's, he, he started doing it before me. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think you got the influence from your brother somehow, or was it not related at all? No, definitely. Yeah, def definitely got influence from my brother and got influence. You know, now my brother's been in recovery now for many years. So, uh, you know, so both of us ultimately got to the path of 12 steps and doing recovery work. What ended up happening for me is that, you know, this one person uh, who was living with us, as a roommate, he was uh, going to, uh, he, had, he had gotten caught trying to sell, uh, I don't know the whole details of it. Uh, I, I did my best to try to, you know, not, I mean, this guy was a train wreck and he had uh, gotten uh, busted trying to sell uh, drugs to an undercover police officer uh, or an undercover, I don't, I don't know to what degree, but I was, you know, just kind of avoiding this guy as much as I could because he had become very uh, destructive. And I remember, and I was trying my best to just, you know, I, I, you know, looking back, I don't even know. I was trying to white knuckle my way through life, basically. And I'd come home one uh, one day, and he was uh, is later, you know, getting towards the evening, and he was smoking coke over a sink with a glass pipe and a torch. And I knew that he had to go to court the next day to face charges of uh, drug possession and, 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 and selling uh, to this undercover officer. And I said, man, dude, you, you may not want to do this. You're, you know, aren't you supposed to be in court? And yeah, yeah, you know. And I ended up going upstairs, keep myself in my room, and I ended up going to sleep. And I woke up in the morning and I go downstairs. It's early in the morning, so I'm like 7 a.m., and back in those days, I'm mostly nocturnal, you know, staying up super late at night. But I happen to get up early and I go downstairs to get a glass of water. And this guy's in a three-piece suit um, with, with a 
pipe, still smoking uh, Coke. And he'd been up all night and he had sweat, you know, on his forehead. And just, I was like, and he's like, my lawyer's outside, you know, he's going to drive me to, you know, court. And, I, you know, and I'm like, Jesus Christ. And, and, and back then, I'm looking, even though I'm an addict, I'm looking at this guy like, are you a complete idiot? Like, what the, what the fuck is going on here? And now looking back, that is how difficult addiction is. There's nothing about that guy that wanted to be doing what he was doing. He was in total, you know, addiction, anxiety ridden, hating life, scared, terrified, but just, you know, his brain and being wanted to escape and that was the method he was trying to soothe the pain and it was it was a terrible condition and now i look at addiction now as you know it's it's a solution to pain you know if you're depressed or anxious or lonely or sad uh feeling hopeless there's nothing wrong with wanting to get out of that state it's it's how you go about scratching the itch and so i believe addiction is uh caused by mostly trauma it's a response to trauma i've done you know many interviews in conversations about that, you know, one of my dear friends, Gabor Mate, does a really good job of speaking to that. And then my friend, Dr. Anna Lemke, wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. There are some people that are not severely traumatized uh, that have addictions because their biochemistry uh, is off and they're looking for ways to, uh, you know, to, to get it. And we live in a bit of a culture that has a lot of seductive ways to increase dopamine from internet to porn to gambling to gaming to food to drugs alcohol you know workaholism which is the respectable addiction and, and all the different things that people do but you know back then i was just trying to feel better and i you know didn't didn't have a really good uh way of doing life i i never did sports i was not into you know academics i, I mean i yeah so uh, and then what ended up happening was that guy ended up going to court going through the process a few days later i'm uh i come home and it's a little bit you know it's later afternoon and i'm watching tv and this guy bust into the literally just bust into the apartment where we're at with a can of lighter fluid and start spraying lighter fluid all over the freaking house screaming like a maniac something you'd see in a freaking movie and i had long hair and he had like sprayed you know and i've got lighter fluid dripping down my forehead and this guy you know has a lighter in his hand he's like i'm gonna fucking torch this place and just screaming like a man like just out of his mind and i'm like dude put the lighter down put talking him down and i mean he's just in a manic state because his life is completely out of control and i'm like i'm about to freaking die here this guy could you know and at that moment, I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. If I, you know, because I was a wreck. My life was a mess. I was so unhealthy. And, and you know, I was just a drug addict. So I got in this piece of crap pickup truck uh, that I had. I drove to uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and I ended up, uh, you know, living in a trailer for, uh, you know, two years almost with, uh, you know, my father. And I started, I got a job delivering newspapers of all things, because they had adult paper routes back then. And I was used to staying up all night. So this job sort of started at around midnight, and it would be delivering papers late at night, and, you know, go to bed at the, you know, wee hours, and I would stay up most of the night and sleep in the morning. And I started going to, uh, to uh, college at New Mexico State University. And then I ultimately got a job at a fitness place called Tom Young's Fitness Center, which I think is still there, 
And this is, you know, God, this is so many years ago. I'm 55 years old. I don't, I don't think that I actually have ever heard you say the reason why you decided that you were going to, you know, kind of like change your life. So it was in, it's interesting to, to hear it from you now because I didn't know the, the actual reason behind why you just woke up one day and be like, I want to just make a difference. I just don't want to do this anymore. And to hear it from you now was just, there was just that crazy uh, situation that happened in your life that made you like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I actually want to live. I want to have a life and I want to do something different. Um, okay, now I want to ask you, like addiction really often co-occurs with mental health disorders, as you would know this. Like it's really estimated that approximately 50% of individuals with severe mental health disorders also experience substance abuse problems. And you work in, in, in recovery, you would know this. Um, now I want to take a step back and talk about Amy Winehouse because she was someone that I really loved in terms of her music. She was supremely talented, exceptional voice, Tra tragically died too early, right? So um, she died in 2011, but prior to her passing away tragically in 2011, she had a really close encounter in 2007 where she basically overdosed on cocaine, heroin, meth, uh, ketamine, and she pretty much had to cancel the rest of her shows that year. So she has been going through this onward battle for such a long time. And when you, you know, I've done my research on her, read her story, knowing what you know today and having gone through so many different similar paths, what do you think you, would you have done to have helped her? Well, uh, th that's a, that I don't 100% know because without knowing her and being there with her and i've you know i've worked with uh, quite a a lot of uh, people that are that have fame and what happens with a lot of people that have uh high status oftentimes lots of money lots of access there they have a lot of handlers and in the throes of their addiction uh, oftentimes when someone famous like you know michael jackson or kurt cobain or you know, Robin Williams, which at first they thought was addiction and stuff, but he, you know, that's, that's a whole nother, you know, brain condition. And, uh, let, you know, say Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix or any of the people like Amy Winehouse that died at 27 years old, there's, you know, the 27 club, there's yes. a lot of people that, you know, Prince is an example, uh, Tom Petty, you know, you have a lot of musicians, you have a lot of actors and actresses that, Avicii is another one. Avicii was another situation too. Yeah, absolutely. They have a lot of handlers. And so in order to be an active addiction and live a double life, you have to lie, cheat and steal. Uh, it's rare that people don't. And even if they don't say I'm lying, cheating and stealing, they're doing it to themselves. They're, they're, you know, it's really, uh, you're in shame when you're in addiction in most cases. And so you, you're in this vicious cycle. You're, doing stuff because you just want to feel better. You know, humans, addiction or no addiction, what humans want, you, me, everybody, this is sort of a simplification about it. I, I, I write about this in my, my uh, book, but you know, humans want more woo and less ah, you know, so yeah. all the woo, woo, you know, all the things we do, let's look at the internet, let's have sex, let's work, let's gamble. <laughs> you know, there's all these adrenaline rushes. There's all these ways of, of feeling excited and, 
you know, the, the addict brain is looking for love in all the wrong places. And so what would I have done? I mean, to whatever degree that you can't, you can't often control an out of control freight train. What you can do is try to enroll it or invite it onto different rails or to slow down if it's going too fast or to make different decisions. Uh, part of it is they need community. So like I've written two books on addiction recovery. I think they're behind me on the bookshelf somewhere. One is the Miracle Morning for Addiction Recovery that I did with Hal Elrod and Anna David. And then another little red book back to that says Understanding Addiction Recovery. And it's a compilation of some of my interviews. Uh, but what I've learned about addiction is there's four things that people need in order to get sober and stay sober. The first is they need community uh, and community of people that care about them and are not actively involved in addiction. And the problem with celebrities and famous people and having money is you have access to almost anything that your addict brain can come up with. As a matter of fact, having money and fame and notoriety and people wanting to please you is one of the worst possible things that a person could have. So uh, intentionally or not, you know, agents, uh, employees, um, lawyers, uh, doctors that are oftentimes treating or working with famous people are the enablers and the facilitators. Uh, many of them are not bad people. You know, Tony Shea was a friend of mine, the founder of Zappos. And the last conversation I had with him was when we were both at TED and I was up in this very big suite that he would rent and he would have people come over, you know, they would, you know, have parties and events and meetings there. And, you know, he'd ask me, you know, what had I been up to? And, you know, this is probably 10 years after I first met Tony, I'd interviewed him at Zappos. I'd gone to Burning Man and hung out with him there. We had, you know, had you know, a few dinners and hangouts. And when he came to Phoenix on his delivering happiness tour and, you know, Tony was always smoking and drinking and, you know, partying. And he had a lot of people who he set up that. So he would have the people around him that would do what he wanted them to do, uh, you know, intentionally or not, you know, manipulating the situation. And, and there just was not enough people that were really looking out for, for Tony. Uh, but at the same time, you're a billionaire, you know, he was a billionaire and he had plenty of, you know, he could, he, he could do a lot with that, that money. So it was, it was a very unfortunate situation. So for Amy, you know, I mean, if, uh, so community is the first thing, the second is it's biochemistry, food, nutrition, proper supplementation. I mean, you work a lot with the gut, right? So 80 to 90. But she was, she was bulimic. She suffered with bulimia. So she wasn't actually eating and she had problems with that as well. So like, it's, from, it's really hard to control that particular disorder and then have an addiction to everything else that you're addicted to, including having everyone like talking about you all the time from the fame aspect to it. So having eating disorder, having the addiction to uh, drugs and then alcohol and then the fame, like it's very difficult, right? So sure, community is everything. The, the day that she died, the day before she told her doctor she didn't want to die. So it was out of her control. She wasn't, she wasn't herself. Yeah. She wasn't capable. Well, and the question is, what is herself? You know, who, what does that even, what yeah. does that mean to her? Well, let's take bulimia. Let's take any, any eating disorder because it's a good way to think about it. Almost all addictions involve binging and purging. It's either excess or it's deprivation. So for instance, my core addiction was uh, sex addiction. 
And when people hear sex addiction, most people would think, oh, that means you want to have a lot of sex or you're, you know, this, you just have this insatiable appetite for sexual behavior or whatever sexual acting out is. A big part of sexual addiction is sexual anorexia, where you have a hard time being sexual because of the shame or whatever is associated with it. So there's binging and purging behavior in everything. It's either excess or deprivation. There's that line about cocaine is, uh, you know, the shortest line is too long and the longest line is never enough, right? So no matter how much you do, you just don't ever feel like it is enough. And, uh, you know, so for instance, a work addict, is working all the time, but they're also depriving themselves of sleep, oftentimes depriving themselves of other forms of joy and relaxation in there. And, and almost all addicts are dealing with identity because, you know, guilt is I feel bad. Shame is I am bad. And most addicts at a core level, oftentimes at worst levels, hate the vessel that they're in. There's one person right, right. now who has a son that uh, is in a treatment center that I had recommended. And I get updates on what's going on in this person, uh, this, you know, her son, uh, you know, does not like, hates himself. Uh, currently now, hopefully in treatment, which is happening as we speak, this person can esteem themselves and they could find ways to tap into starting to, you know, find, you know, meaning and respect uh, with, with who they are. And that has to go through some deep, you know, trauma work and, and to getting to a point, cause I, I hated myself. Uh, I had low self-esteem, I had low self-worth. And when I was raped and molested as a kid, I was paid money, uh, to not say anything about it. And so I felt like just this worthless person who is, you know, just a piece of shit human. And that, that feeling was never in, you know, a thought that I had until I had that sexual abuse. And then it became, humiliation, embarrassment, shame. And, uh, and it wasn't what happened to me. It was not having anything, any way to process what happened to me. So the, the guilt and the shame and the trauma oftentimes is, you know, everyone to a degree has had very difficult things happen in their life. It has challenges, has gotten bullied, had gotten betrayed, had been, you know, many people, way more than most people would imagine, have been sexually, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually abused. And, you know, when I tell my story, you know, I always want to put it in context, too, that, you know, I was victimized as a child. And as an adult, uh, many people are victims. We're all victims at some time, way, shape or form. Some are victimizers. Uh, it's it's not that you don't have bad things happen to you. It's what you do with it afterwards. And when you become an adult, you know, it, it is your responsibility to do something with it. If you, if you're at the place where you can make decisions, because I believe addiction is not a choice. There is a point where it is beyond choice. There are moments though, where you can make certain choices and that's where you have to resource yourself and esteem yourself. And that's usually going to come in the form of connection with others. That's why I talk about community first, second is biochemical, third is the underlying trauma work, and the fourth is the environment. So if you work on those four things, you have the best chances of not only escaping addiction. I have something on the wall. I should go grab it. Uh, I'm going to grab it. Yeah, grab I'll, it. <laughs> let's show you this.
Yeah, so I, as I'm yelling to the microphone, so I helped a, I helped a friend of mine get out of a, of the trap of this addiction life she had. And she painted for this for me probably, oh, this goes back to 2009. And she, uh, I helped her with her addiction. And, and she, it says, sobriety didn't open up the gates of heaven to let me in, but it sure did open up the gates of hell to let me out. Wow, and, that's really good. Yeah, so, you know, the, and that was actually a quote I'd shared with her early on in, a, in, in addiction, where, you know, recovery doesn't make life immediately better for you. It just leads a path. And what, there's a book written by Ernie Larson, I don't know when it was written, many years ago, but it was, uh, you know, stage two recovery. So what most people think of in recovery and addiction treatment is, you know, getting sober. So that's stage one, though, stopping the drugs, the alcohol, the the behaviors, you know, the process addictions, which all encompass, you know, everything from eating disorders to uh, sexual acting out to Internet, to gambling, gaming, extreme exercise, you know, because the Johan Hari line is really great, which is the opposite of addiction is connection. So connect, addiction is a connection disorder. And if you're disconnected, as Amy Winehouse was, she's going to look for ways to try to feel better. You know, Janis Joplin, who also overdosed, you know, famous musician, she had a she had a line where she said, I would go make love to 20,000 people when she was performing on stage, but then I'd go back to my hotel room alone. So there are people that are world famous that you know, and I've sat with a few of them that millions of people listen to their music or watch their games or watch their movies or admire them that have, you know, in some cases, dozens, if not hundreds of employees, uh, entire enterprises built around them, and they feel totally alone. And it's, it's really sad because Oftentimes, the people that are really trying to help them, they shut them out. Do they intentionally do that? Sometimes. Other times, the addict, you know, when I was a cocaine addict, I would wake up every day and get high, and I'd get high to go to bed. Uh, it was uppers in the morning, downers in the evening, you know, drinking alcohol at night to just, you know, inebriate myself. And I didn't want to do any of that any more than I don't think any addict wants to be in the throes of addiction. Uh, but I'll tell you, like when you feel really disconnected and life sucks and you feel hopeless, um, addiction uh, works. It works in the moment. And so you say you said that, uh, you know, you're really close friends with Dr. Gabor Mate. He's someone that I've been following for a long time. I love his work. I love what he talks about. And he did say something which is, uh, I think, really important is on the point that you talked about when it came to connection. So the human brain is really wired for connection, right? And yeah. in the absence of these healthy connections, it will bond with anything that offers relief for that pain. Yes. So addiction isn't just about like, I wanna go and get high. I want to find something that will help me relieve my pain. So as someone who has really experienced both the highs and lows uh, of life and business, and what advice would you give, like now that you know so much, what advice would you give your, your, your younger self today? Well, when, when I was reaching for things that were 
I said this the other day that if there wasn't this thing called consequences living in some of the behaviors or things that you're doing when you're an addict can actually be quite fun. You know, it, it, it's fun to go have sex. It's fun to uh, sometimes depends on who it's with and how uh, it, it's fun to, you know, get a buzz and, you know, except when you're puking and you're, you're, you're sick and throwing up. So if there, if there's not this thing called consequences, many of the, uh, you know, behaviors that lead to people destroying their lives, people would do more of them. The, the challenge is, is when you're disconnected and you're doing that all the time, you don't even know what connection feels like because you're having an artificial connection with it. I mean, some people are addicted to plastic surgery. Some people are addicted to tattoos. And what I mean by addicted, it's like they get a dopamine hit. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, when you take sexual stuff, because I have done a lot of work in that, that arena, you know, I've, I got an interview with Pat Carnes, who's the top sex addiction doctor in the world that we did that interview probably in 2011. People can watch it on YouTube. Everyone has an arousal template. And so whatever you're introduced to that gives you pleasure, you have a template, you have a patterning in your brain and you actually want to seek it out. So what I would have told my younger self is get help a lot earlier, deal with my traumas, deal with the shit that happened to me. If you feel, you know, if you feel shitty, you know, if you don't feel okay in the world, uh, and most addicts do not feel okay in the world. And I would deal with the things that, that had, uh, the traumas cause I never worked through those. So I spent a good chunk of my adult life. It wasn't until really my mid forties where I started seeing some longer periods of relief. I I've been in recovery for over, you know, 25 years at this point. And I've been to maybe it's in the thousands range of, 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 of meetings, support groups. I've spent half a million dollars on therapy. I've done 30 day inpatient treatments. The last one I did was, uh, you know, 2002. Um, you know, my father also died that year. And after he did, I acted out because when people lose their father as men, even if they don't have a good relationship with them, there's a high percentage of people that struggle with addiction that have relapses. And so what I did say about, let me finish the thought I want to come back to, I was saying stage uh, two recovery is dealing with the, so stage one is getting sober. And that's what most people uh, think of as recovery. I quit drinking. But that term dry drunk, there's a lot of dry drunks running around. They quit drinking, but they're still got the same asshole behaviors that, you know, they were when they were drinking and they're still their lives are out of control and they're unmanageable. Stage two recovery is dealing with the underlying emotions and traumas and things that cause you to act out addictively in the first place. But again, if from my perspective and I'm totally open to being wrong, uh, I, I constantly question you know, my current level of understanding and consciousness and everything I'm talking about right now, Mary, is just what I currently understand and I believe to be true. But a belief means you're just not sure. When someone's like, I believe in God, are you sure? Is there really a God? What does that even mean? So a lot of people hold on to erroneous beliefs as if they're absolute facts. And so I always try to look at everything that I say and do and think with a beginner's mind. I'm always looking for ways to see where am I wrong? Where am I not really understanding this? And addiction is a very complex thing. Uh, I've, you know, Gabor Mate is an example, you know, I've got a couple great interviews with Gabor, uh, his new book, uh, you know, The Myth of Normal. Uh, that book came about because I brought a guy named Ben Hardy over to uh, Gabor's home in Vancouver. You know, I was just with Gabor, 
you know, two weeks ago at his house in, in Vancouver. And uh, I brought Ben Hardy, who's a really amazing author, and he connected him with, uh, you know, Gabor's current agent. And that led to Gabor's, uh, you know, newest book. But I, you know, I read a bunch of stuff on trauma. I've interviewed a lot of therapists. Uh, you know, I've one of the top addiction therapists in the world. Ken Wells writes the blog for GeniusRecovery.org, which is my addiction foundation. The goal of that is to, you know, change the global conversation about how people view and treat addicts with compassion instead of judgment and find the best forms of treatment that have efficacy and share it with the world. So what I would have done is I would have been more compassionate with myself. And so I tried to do that today with Amy Weimhouse, you know, love them, do your best to help. If you can guide, direct them, bring really strong community to someone that's struggling with addiction. If, if, and here's the problem. If you are an addict yourself, or if you have family members or friends or employees, that are struggling with addiction and they're causing a lot of pain and angst and stress in your life. Sometimes you're so close to them that it's really hard to love somebody that is lying to you, cheating, stealing, being a total pain in the ass. And that's where you need to resource yourself and kind of step away oftentimes from it and not be get enmeshed in codependency because there's no such thing as just a single alcoholic or sex addict or workaholic there's all kinds of things that they're doing that are addictive behaviors there's usually a core addiction uh but i've it's rare for me to find all they do is cocaine no they're doing a bunch of other shit too and they've got a whole life built around it but what what the stuff they're doing is not the problem a war on drugs is like a war on addicts it's the wrong war we don't need a war on drugs we need a drug against war Okay, and that that drug is going to be love and it's going to be compassion. And, you know, these are easier said than done. Uh, so I, I understand a lot of things here. Uh, what what I will say, though, is that addicts become pleasure deaf and normal things like going for a walk with your kids or by yourself or just looking at the sunset. When someone's mired in addiction, they may look and be around and be like, I don't understand why everyone is finding this so meaningful. I need more stimulation. And so mm. when you're, when you stop the, that's a problem with, let's say internet, you know, in the internet influencer world, right? Okay. You have a big following. You have over a million people that follow you on uh, one of your Instagram, uh, you know, pages. And the challenge with young people is if they, uh, one of the challenges for young people, not with young people before is we live in a culture that is constantly, selling status instead of growth. And when I was, I want people to look at me, I want, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a heterosexual male. I, 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 it would be really great if, you know, women found me cool and attractive when I was a young guy and wanted to, you know, listen to what I had to say, go out on dates with me, you know, find me, you know, whatever I, you know, appealing in whatever ways I want to be appealing. You know, it's very seductive to want people to, like you look at you and in 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 what happens is people they want people to lust after them and we live in a culture where you know you 86 percent of young people in america i don't know and this probably changes on a day-to-day -day basis and god knows what the you know what the pandemic hit you know that that nonsense and i say nonsense from the standpoint of the level of fear porn and propaganda and bullshit that was fed out and still is fed out through social media and fed out, 
you know, to, to the world is it, it paints this picture of, you know, build status. So 86% of young people, when asked, what do they want to do? I want to be a YouTuber. I want to be a blogger. You know, I want to be famous. I want, you know, and, and look, I mean, being famous, there's advantages and benefits to that. But I'll tell you, I've met with, I know a lot of famous people. And if you don't know who you are, when you get into the business, uh, like my friend, uh, Glenn Morshar said, you know, it, it will misinform you. If you get into the, you know, the acting business and the entertainment business without really knowing who you are, it will misinform you. And that, and that's probably, let's go back to Amy Winehouse, you know, put yourself in her yeah. shoes, you know, which I can't, I can only ob observationally, I, I don't ever try to pretend what I know what it's like to live in someone else's shoes. Cause Unless I've lived their life, I don't know their life. Like my friend, Dr. Don Wood, uh, he's he's a great uh, trauma therapist, and he is one of my Genius Network members, and I write about him in, in, in my book, What's in It for Them. That's my latest book. And he has this great line where he said, if you understood the atmospheric conditions of somebody's life, it would make sense why they do what they do, who they are. And what I've learned is that me, the atmospheric conditions of my life led to a lot of addiction, a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, a lot of angst, a lot of denial, a lot of self-hatred, uh, you know, many, many hours of, uh, you know, uh, suicidal ideation and contemplation, a couple of times where I was very close, you know, I've had guns in my mouth, you know, uh, struggling with pulling the trigger. You know, there's been very dark nights of the soul. There's been a lot of, uh, a lot of crap that has come out of it. And uh, through the journey, uh, life wants to live, you know, when you see a, a weed or a flower trying to grow through asphalt, there's something about life, you know, humans want to live, animals want to live, life wants to continue. So when you want it to end, what is going on in the being? And so I believe you can change the atmospheric conditions of your own life. That can be an example to other people, and you can help guide the weather conditions. Uh, the, the, the booby trap, though, is to not become an enabler, not to become codependent. You know, Ken Richardson is the founder of Codependence Anonymous. He's a friend of mine. He actually lives here in, in North Scottsdale. So he founded CODA. So there's CODA meetings because almost all addictions have, you know, they have codependency, right? And I asked him, why did you, you know, create, you know, Codependence Anonymous? He goes, well, I was you know, he, I think he was one of the main directors at the Meadows, which is a treatment facility that is kind of well known out here in, um, in uh, Arizona. And he said, there's all these therapists that we were treating people all day long with addiction, but we didn't have any place to go to ourselves. And that's, you know, and, and that's very insightful and aware, you know, because a lot of, you know, a lot of people that that try to help other people with their mental issues have a lot of their own mental issues, their own mental illnesses, their own addictions, their own challenges. And so part of it is, you know, one of the reasons I do what I do with my foundation and what I do with addiction, uh, I often, people give me more credit than I probably would want them to because they look at me like some philanthropic, you know, sweet angel sort of person. And I'm like, look, my own self-interest, this is really helpful for my own addiction. I don't make money off my foundation. Uh, it, as a matter of fact, I, I've spent a lot of money to try to build this stuff out, but I'm in a fortunate situation where I have a successful company. I've, you know, I've equity in 28 different companies. I, I, I've done well. I have really smart people around me. I've worked my ass off in order to develop it. And it'd be a total waste of my marketing skills if I was just selling more courses and things on how to build a business. I mean, I know, I, I'm trying to do something that, 
you know, really helps people struggle with addiction because I know the pain and the struggle and the loneliness and the angst. And there's a lot of very financially successful people that the only reason that they have built financially successful lives and businesses is it's 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 a bit of a being a lopsided loser in a lot of ways. You just don't know how to do anything else and you can make a lot of money and you can get a lot of status. But, you know, do you do you, do you care about yourself? Do you do you love yourself? And a lot of people don't. So I don't equate someone's financial success with a life that works versus a life that doesn't work. And so I look at my own life. What's working? You know, how do I do more of that? What's not working? How do I address it? And in the past, I ignored a lot of yellow flags. I ignored a lot of red flags. I ignored, I beat the shit out of myself and I could hide it really well. And I'm, I can still do that today. I can be very clever about it. So I have to, you know, I, I do my best to have people that will call me out on my own shit and, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. And when someone's wrecking themselves, but they have no one around them that will check them or will love them or, or, or that has enough trust and rapport. And, and, and I'll tell you, the people that really love and care and treat for people that struggle with addictions, their children, their, their husbands, their wives, their, you know, their friends, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes. It's really hard. And it's, it's like sitting with someone who's dying and you want to be able to fix them and you want to be able to help them and you want to be able to take the pain away and knowing that there's only so much you can do. And some people, they will not make it. And I don't say that um, as a negative. It's just, I don't know if you've ever sat, Mary, with someone that, on their deathbed or when they're dying. I've, I've had uh, my- I have, I have, definitely. Yeah, and, and they're, oftentimes the very best thing you can do is just be present with them. You know, um, my, my girlfriend is a, a brilliant surgeon and she's been around so much death and she's never lost the compassion. She's really caring and very sweet and uh, and a lot of people aren't. Uh, a lot of doctors. I mean, I've met 20% of people in Genius Network are in the health field. So I have a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors, functional medicine doctors, integrative doctors, naturopaths. And the interesting thing with the whole health field, because that's a lot of your world, is we live in a world where it's a pill for an ill. If you're, if you're a medical doctor, it's a medicine. If you're a functional medicine doctor, oftentimes it's a supplement. And some people over prescribe or oversell or over, you know, over diagnose, whatever. Uh, but the thing is, is just to not get compassion fatigue. One of the biggest dangers, I did a, um, a podcast, I don't know, probably three, four years ago. I was the first person that was not a medical doctor that they interviewed for this uh, this podcast. It went out to fifty thousand emergency room, um, you know, physicians and, and nurses and doctors. Uh, and my friend, Doctor Jamie Hope, who works in the ninth uh, busiest uh, uh, trauma uh, emergency room in the in the United States outside of Detroit, is the one that introduced me to this group. And the feedback that they got when I said, you know, when you see someone come in as an emergency room doctor, you see addicts at their worst possible state. You see the consequences of drug driving, stabbings, gunshot wounds, hurting themselves, hurting others, overdose, totally messed up. And you're going to see this person and immediately, you know, you're probably going to be like, what kind of a dumbass stupid person here, I have to take care and try to save this person's life or piece them together. 
and they oftentimes get real compassion fatigue, just being an emergency room doctor. If you see people in pain all, all day long, you, you almost have to compartmentalize what's going on in order to, you know, treat that person. And at the same time, how do you not, you know, how do you embrace the suffering that you're surrounded in? And the, the pain is the messenger, you know, uh, with connecting with people. First chapter of my book on connection is be a pain detective because pain is a messenger. And all the people that we see in pain, your own pain, it's life trying to say, pay attention here. I need, I need some love. I need some care. I need to get away from this environment. You know, when you're burning yourself, move away from the flame. The weird thing with addiction is people jump into the flame. They, there's a part of their psyche that is, you know, dancing with darkness. And, and it's, uh, remember the band Guns N' Roses? Yeah, I love Guns N' Roses. Yeah. So I uh, used to listen to Guns N' Roses all the time when I was, when I was a kid uh, in college, mostly. And um, their first album that, be, that made them very well known was Appetite for Destruction. And that's what those three words that very well describe addiction. It's an appetite for destruction. It's like, you know what? I have a really healthy partner that loves and adores me, but you know, that bad boy or that, you know, we find people whose dense match our dense. And so often, yeah, <laughs> oftentimes, that's so true. Yeah. Addiction is like, yeah, let's go fuck ourselves up a bit. Let's, Let's go do something. And it's, it's a really complex thing, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, there's so much on the other side. And so the opposite of addiction is connection. Uh, so if you think of the darkest part of life being addiction, despair, hopelessness, suicide, fear, you know, like the only healthy form of fear is concern. You know, all the other forms of fear, terror and stuff, those are, they're trying to tell you something. And the, the bliss part of life is flow. If you can get into a flow state. So on one spectrum, if you have addiction and the other, you have flow, uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book flow, the psychology of, uh, uh, psychology of achievement. I can't remember or optimal achievement. I can't remember the, the subtitle, but he was one of the first ones that wrote some of the best work on flow. And then Stephen Kotler, who's become a, you know, dear friend of mine. Uh, he, he's, I would consider him one of the top uh, current modern day experts of not only flow, but actually engineering and figuring out how to get into a flow state. And Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi said the same neural pathways that an addict uses for self-destruction and for addiction are the same neural pathways that the, the world's top performers, athletes, achievers, entrepreneurs use to get into flow. So we're using the same neural pathways. It's just one is leading to ultimate connection and the other is leading to ultimate disconnection. So if someone is disconnected and you see them doing bad stuff, there needs to, you know, help them uh, first, love them, care about them, have empathy. So you don't start viewing them as a moral degenerate because you cannot punish pain out of people. And if you're in pain, punishing yourself, hating yourself, you hear all these words too, like in, you know, be gentle that's really hard for someone that hates themselves to be gentle with something you hate. You know, think about it. I hate this person. I'm going to be really gentle with them. Well, the problem with addiction is oftentimes you hate yourself. 
So anyway, I know I'm saying a lot of stuff, but I'm, these are just some perspectives that I hope people can. Uh, well, you know, you, you've spoken about trauma. You've spoken about addiction. You've spoken about love. You've spoken about connection. But I think a topic that most people don't really talk about is that broken children become broken adults. Mm-hmm. And broken adults raise broken children. Mm-hmm. So it's just really this vicious cycle that continues to go on and on. So we aren't really like we, we're not taught how to become parents at school, right? We learn from our parents and from society and obviously from pain. And we most certainly are not given a user's manual on how to become a parent when we decide to have children. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I believe that in order to really be good at parenting is we need to be, you know, taught how to become better at, at living our own lives, dealing with our own traumas and to be conscious and responsible, uh, to be a responsible, conscious, do conscious parenting is that you need to heal from a lot of the things that you haven't healed from. So it really stems from that. So let's go back to the concept of marriage, right? It only existed about 1500 years ago. And, and with that came societal conditioning, as you would know. Uh, we need to do X things to be accepted. We need to do Y things to be considered successful. But I think the two fundamental things that people really forget into the ingredients of what becoming a better human is about is love and connection. Now, what I'd like to ask you is, how can society as a whole like really work towards creating a more nurturing and loving environment that really reduces the prevalence of this addiction rooted in love deprivation. Like what role can education, can policy, community initiatives really play in addressing this particular issue? Because it isn't just about like, you know, we we get older and we have all of these problems. It's really learning to, or, or really changing that global conversation, as you said. And where does it stem from? Like, how can we become conscious, responsible parents if we ourselves are not responsible? We're not healing a lot of the problems that we're healing from. What can we change? What do we need to do? Yeah, so, so I don't think society is going to do anything. I think it'll be individuals within that can do something and then the ripple effect. Like, I have this whole thing where people will often say to me, you know, I want to change the world. And that's a, you know, it sounds nice. Um, however, you know, I'm probably not going to change the world. I don't know, you know, some people that do change the world, I don't know if their goal was to change the world. I think they just found a problem or they found something that they wanted to address. They happened to do a really good job with it and it happened to impact a lot of people. And the domino effect became the changing of the world. So I think the very best thing that we can do is uh, be personally responsible. Because let's take the word because you mentioned the word responsibility. When I was in active addiction, I was reacting to life. When my life is working, I'm responding to life. And that's what responsibility is. It's responding with ability. And the more that we create the ability to, you know, if you want to be in better physical health and be responsible, you can't react and just eat every candy bar or uh, drink every, you know, sugary drink you know, like, you know, what, what is sodas? I mean, you know, the biggest brand in the world is Coca-Cola. I mean, it's liquid Satan. 
And it basically stemmed from, you know, cocaine cola. That's where, you know, think about the biggest brand in the world. I had that conversation with Richard Branson. I was at on Necker Island talking with Richard about the biggest brands. What's the biggest brand? Well, like Coca-Cola, what's one of the most respected brands? It would be, you know, Apple computer would be an example. But you have these things that there are individuals and there are people that have, quote unquote, changed the world. But to take it to a community level, I think the very best thing we could do uh, is don't handicap your kids by making their lives too easy. So oftentimes loving, caring parents, they want to take every challenge and every pain away from their kids. And that doesn't help them either. So it's a little bit of art and science. And every parent is going to fuck up. Every person is going to say the wrong things. Every human is going to go through a stage where we're self-centered, selfish, desperate, probably short, not caring. And there's others where we're going to be loving and challenging and compassionate and sweet and productive. And so try to spend more time as much as you can living in gratitude, uh, taking care of the vessel called your body. You know, that, that, that proverb, you know, he, who, he or she who has their health has a thousand dreams. He or she who does not have their health has only one. You know, wake up every day and be glad. You know, there's, I, I constantly think about this. There's at least, as I sit here talking to you right now, and I would put you in the same category, there's at least 3 billion people on this planet of a you know handful of a few billion people that their lives would be forever changed and blessed if they could trade places with me or you for an hour. It would be the greatest thing that ever happened to their entire existence. And don't, you know, keep things in perspective. If you have a broken foot, and you see someone that has two broken feet, it gives you perspective that you, you know, or someone that's missing legs that at least, but that doesn't make your broken foot hurt any less. You still have to take care of your broken foot. So you can't fix the world with broken hands and you're not gonna be a great parent all the time, but there, as a parent, as an entrepreneur, as an athlete, uh, whatever, you, you know, someone is, you're gonna play broken. The key though is not to stay broken. And the key is to not continually beat yourself into the ground because the vast majority of people that die is from lifestyle diseases. You know, the one of the number one killers, uh, well, probably number two uh, of young people is uh, is suicide. You know, the number one causes. Yeah, it's be but it's because they lack loving connection. It always brings us back to those two points, right? Yeah. It's they lack the love. They lack the connection. You know, I'm going to give you an example. Like I work with a lot of people who uh, their partners end up leaving them. So there's just that lack of like, hey, I want to be part of, I still want to be a part of that family. I still want to be around for my children, you know, and, and these are really successful individuals who've really made it in other parts of their life. And then their whole world comes crashing down when a situation like that. So what do we crave most as people? We crave loving connection. It will always bring us back to that. But if we are broken adults and we haven't healed from a lot of the things that we need to heal from, you can't be in a position to want to raise children because you haven't healed because you're just going to pass on all of the trauma, all of the bitterness, all of the anger, everything to your child, which is unfair. Uh, you know, I don't know how you feel about that, but that's where I think the the major change should happen. Like we should take a step back, self-reflect, and really put ourselves in a position of, I want to become a parent, but in order for me to become a parent and to be, raise a really good child and break that generational curse, I need to fix a lot of the things that's causing me pain and hurt so that I can 
put my best foot forward and become the parent this child deserves. Yeah, let, uh, no, that's good. So let me let me say let me say it this way, because uh, I oftentimes I've had this conversation a thousand times with people like, why would you call yourself an addict? Uh, you know, you're why would you say you're powerless? Because that's a part of twelve steps. Now, twelve steps is only one part of addiction. I think. 12 Steps is phenomenal. They've helped more people with addiction than every inpatient, outpatient, book, seminar, course, therapist, by a factor of multiples. So people that bash 12-step groups probably have never done the steps, probably don't really understand them. And there's a lot of people that are in recovery, they're like, meetings don't work for me. And that's fine. Don't Then go find another thing that does work. But don't discount the fact that it's free. Don't discount the fact that it's literally saved millions of people's lives. And don't discount the fact that uh, it's available mostly in most places of the world. And if you can, and if you have access to a computer, you can go to online meetings too. So what I always say to people though, is that it's not an attendance program. Okay. It's a step program. And if you just go to meetings and attend, it's kind of like going to the gym and sitting on the bench and then saying gyms don't work. No one would ever go to a gym, sit on the bench or look, you know, observe a yoga class or a fitness class or a Pilates class, or people swimming and say, you know, swimming doesn't work, Pilates doesn't work, yoga doesn't work, you know, or look at, you know, eating doesn't work. I mean, well, it depends what you eat, you know, so uh, 12 steps is not an attendance program, it's a step program. So if you go and you get a sponsor and you do the steps, as a matter of fact, 12 steps actually work pretty darn well. And when people say I'm powerless, well, we're all powerless. It's something. Uh, If there was a giant grizzly bear, jumped into your studio right now and was chasing after you, you could punch it, you could maybe shoot it, but physically you're probably not as powerful as that grizzly bear. And if a grizzly bear jumped in here too, I'd probably be pretty powerful. So I don't look at saying I'm powerless or I'm, I don't have control over this area of my life as some form of weakness because we're all weak in a particular area. The key is identifying where we're strong, where we're Superman or Superwoman and saying, you know, there's kryptonite. There are certain things there's certain behaviors and things that I cannot go to because if I did, they're going to mess me up. And so uh, here's the thing. I can look back, and this sounds absolutely crazy. Uh, and, you know, I've said this line when I was speaking to young entrepreneurs where if I would have known being successful was this much work, I would have stuck with being a loser. You know, and I. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I think like being a loser is equally as hard, being successful is equally as hard, which path do you decide to choose? Oh, no, yeah, and, and the thing is, life, like in, in, the, in the world less traveled, you know, the, the first lines of that book is life is difficult. And yes, it's finding meaning in suffering. And, and you know, I wouldn't do any of the shit that I, so I could say like, I had a shitty childhood and there are people that have far worse childhoods than me. I talk to people on a weekly basis that have gone through stuff that I cannot even fathom. and. And, and it's wild to also understand that the way that I feel better, when, my, when I feel like my life sucks, the way that I get out of it is I actually go and try to talk or sit with someone who's going through challenges themselves or whose life sucks worse than mine does. And the, way, you know, the advice I would give to anyone that wants to change their community, you can be a producer or you can be a parasite. You can contribute to society by having a strong work ethic by finding problems that need to be solved to get rid of this bullshit about find your passion and go follow your passion. That's, that sounds good in a seminar, but it's kind of nonsense. 
what you want to do is, you know, like Mike Rowe, who the guy that did the book uh, or the, the TV show Dirty Jobs, really smart guy. That's a big spokesperson for blue collar workers and is observed and filmed people doing jobs that most people would be like, I'd never want these jobs. And he's like, these are some of the happiest people you'd ever meet because they're productive. You know, anything received free of charge is seldom value. And so you want to earn if you're in great physical health and you earn it, that esteems you. If you've if you've been really shy and introverted and you're scared of asking somebody out on a date and you don't feel good about yourself, but you still take that fear and you face it, you start esteeming yourself. You don't get self-esteem and money and success and joy just because you want it. I mean, focusing on what you want is helpful. You get it because you do things that create and generate joy, that generate better physical health, that generate love. And that's not saying someone's not deserving of it. I think all, all humans are deserving of love and appreciation. Some people that have done the most horrible things in the world, hopefully they will find grace at some point. Some people have to go to prison in order to, to find that grace. Like my friend, Doc, I mean, not Dr. Uh, Andre Norman, um, who I've been funding for over five years. He spent 14 years in maximum security prison. If people want to see who this guy is, go to Andre Norman you know, dot com. I'll introduce him to you, do a podcast with him. The guy's amazing. He's a big black guy that was the number three gang leader in prison and, you know, got out 25 years ago, went to Harvard, be, started helping kids. And, you know, now he runs a prison in North Carolina. He's called on some of the most difficult situations. And you took a guy that would literally hurt people, stab people. Uh, you know, he had two counts of attempted murder when he was in prison. He went to prison for armed robbery. I mean, he was a bad guy and he, he did bad things, but it, that was the environment he grew up in. And he found meaning sitting in solitary confinement for two years and totally transformed his life. So I've seen amazing Phoenix rising from the ashes stories. And if anyone would have seen me in my worst state to see what I do today, it would be like, even me, I'm like, how in the hell did I pull off any of this shit? But I look back. That's pretty impressive. It's really impressive what you've pulled off. So that's the reason why I feel like this conversation with you today was so important because of what you have really like, what you have experienced, what you have come from to what you have done with those challenges, those that the, the, the pain that you went through. So, you know, um, in your book, What's in it for them? I, I, uh, I listened to it on, on Audible. And uh, you speak a lot about community and the importance of community. And you did say that winning the right friends and, and influencing the right people yeah. was the way forward. You also talked about two principles. So it's the ELF principle, which is easy, lucrative, fun relationships. You talked about the half uh, principles, which is half annoying, hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. Right. Um, and, 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 and these are types of, of, of being in the, in the wrong kind of relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think most people end up in, in, in communities and in relationships with people that define who they are, their worth, and they think that that's all they deserve. And putting yourself in a position where uh, you you know that you can be in a room with better people, smarter people, people who can really accelerate your life, but you don't have the confidence to get to that level. Now, your genius network and what you have and what you've built is really known for bringing you know um, together like some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. Um, what are some of the common characteristics and habits that you've observed among? these incredibly high achievers and what really sets them apart from 
from others. Now, these high achievers like yourself have gone through a, a really colorful past as well. Like they have, they've been faced with challenges, adversities, trials, tribulations, pain, uh, loss, grief. So aside from your particular story, do you think like the 1% in the world of the people who've really created that different and changed their pain into success, what, what, what are the similarities? Is it just the drive to, to really want to become better? Did they wake up one day having a similar situation as yours that really just changed their perspective? Or is it more than that? Is it just that, you know, the, the spirit of, of, of knowing that they can do, they, the spirit of not giving up? What is it? What makes, what makes them different? Yeah, you know, there's probably a variety of characteristics. Uh, definitely uh, what I would consider successful, though, uh, may differ from uh, other people. And, and I also am very careful to not ever define what success is uh, for some people. It's being a great parent. Others, it's making a lot of money. Other people, it's being in great physical health. Others, it's having a deep spiritual connection. So there's many uh, criteria. I think we uh, measure the wrong things in society because oftentimes we measure status and fame and notoriety as a successful person. And as you know, uh, if you go behind... Um, if you've ever seen a James Bond movie or if you go to like the new mission, I have, yeah, you know, the mission impossible movies or things like that. You watch these movies and they're kind of cool. And, you know, there's a bunch of attractive people and, you know, the, the guy gets the girl or the girl gets the guy or they, they get to this or they save the world or whatever. And then you sit back and you look at your life and you realize normal life is very boring. It's very mundane. There's a lot of moments, you, you know, you get out of bed, you got to pee, you got to brush your teeth you know, you're tired, you, 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 most people wake up every day and they bumble their way through life, even with, you know, the best of strategies and techniques. And, and, and I come to the frame that most people are, uh, you know, dealing with all kinds of a variety of stuff and they care about themselves more than they give a shit about what anyone else. And oftentimes people capture their attention and, you know, that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, if, if you tie it all together, uh, the people that I think are successful is do they operate with integrity? Uh, do they give more than they take? Uh, you know, there's real connecting uh, and then there's connecting. So try to avoid the connectors. It's like trying to avoid, you know, the snakes in the grass that are poisonous versus the ones that are harmless, right? The ones that are sweet. And so uh, life is filled with a mixed bags of humans all bumbling around trying to, you know, figure out how to do stuff. So to, to a couple of things you mentioned that uh, the book, what's in it for them? Uh, I spent two years on that book. And I wrote the first manuscript for it. Uh, and then I decided I was going to take a one-year sabbatical in 2021 because uh, a friend of mine, uh, where the thought of uh, sabbatical came from, was my best friend, Sean Stevenson, died a few months prior. Uh, I had a breakup of a relationship, which was very disheartening and uh, painful for me. Uh, I had another friend that died. Uh, right after Sean Stevenson had died. And then um, the pandemic had started. And because I spend half my time, uh, you know, helping people with addictions and immersing myself in addiction recovery stuff and doing all the stuff that I do in that realm with, uh, with my work time, uh, I saw the world going into a very dark place. And then I had a friend who I actually got the term easy, lucrative and fun from in the 90s, a guy named Mark, uh, his son, uh, reached out to me on Instagram of all things 
and said, can, uh, are you on WhatsApp? And I'm like, I don't use it that much, but uh, he's like, can I call you? Because he was in Pan Panama and he, he's like, can I call you? And I'm like, sure. And so he calls me and lets me know that he had found his father, who was my friend, Mark, uh, in, in bed that morning. Uh, they'd found him dead at 59 years old. And Mark was worth $300 million. And I was like, something just popped him up, take a sabbatical. I didn't know why. And I was the last person from many years of being a workaholic that I would think like, let me take a whole year off. And I, I made the decision that I would take an entire year off. And I had to come to the point that even if my business went away, even if uh, it didn't matter, I, I there was something inside of me that just wanted to, to do that. So how does that all tie into um, entrepreneurs that are too tightly scheduled cannot transform themselves. That's a conversation I have with Dan Sullivan all the time. He's a guy that created a company called Strategic Coach. We do a podcast together that we've been doing for over a decade now. And I started thinking about uh, what was going on with the pandemic, reading a lot of stuff, watching stuff, looking at what I felt was planned, what I felt was dishonest what i felt was a i can explain the pan which i'm not going to the, i don't want to take too much time on that. i can I, I can explain the pandemic through the lens of addiction and i just saw addiction at a much much deeper level i called up hay house which is a publisher of my book and uh said to read like uh, they wanted me to publish the book in uh in 2021 20, uh, uh, and i said i'm I'm going to take a sabbatical. I, and they gave me a big advance. So I, I said, oh, I'm happy to give the advance back. But they're like, no, we want you to do the book. And I took a sabbatical. And I ended up um, uh, in 2022, we ended up uh, publishing the book uh, around November. And I wrote a whole new book. I scrapped the whole original manuscript. And I had to look at all my relationships. And I did a really deep analysis of my self-esteem, my self-worth, and, and the book even though it's a bunch of capabilities on how to develop relationships and meet people and make connections. And it's a whole book on connections. It's really, a, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a good book. You no, know, thank you. And it, and it's a character book though. I, you know, cause there's a lot of people with capabilities that have shitty characters. And I think to answer your question on success is what's your character? What's the output? Doesn't mean you're perfect. Uh, it, it just means you've taken the cards that you've been dealt and you've done the very best with it. And I, and I really look at people like, what would Sean Stevenson do? He spent his life in a wheelchair. Uh, what would my friend Dave Kekich do? You know, he's spent half his life in a wheelchair. He, he died recently, but it's like, there are people that have made incredible progress in the world that have filled other people's lives with love and joy And the sun. When the sun is out is always there. And when the sun is not out, when it's dark, it's not. But when the sun is out, it's there. But oftentimes we don't see it because there's clouds in the way. So love is always there. Connection is always there. Joy is always there. There's a certain things that get in the way. So the not to do list is more important than the to do list. Uh, many businesses die uh, because they don't have enough customers. Uh, they, they, they die of starvation. Uh, but many people die of indigestion. Uh, we live in a world now where there's so much stuff to read and consume. And really the joy is found in the normal. It's in the boring. It's in the mundane. And the whole thing I was going on that riff about passion. You know, Mike Rose says, you know, don't find your passion. Bring your passion with you. 
bring your passion into everything you're doing. What may suck for somebody, if you can bring enthusiasm and you can bring a work ethic and you can bring progress into it and not your bullshit ego and status into things, which is all bullshit. I mean, we have a mind that will taunt us and misinform us uh, with, oh, go talk to this person. That person may not be very good. You know, and if you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. You know, don't sell anything to anyone that you would not sell to your best friend or your mother, assuming you liked your mother, uh, right? So take care of people. Don't be an asshole. You know, that one of the best pieces of advice I learned, you know, how do you help your community? Be nice to the people you meet on the way up. They're the same people you meet on the way down. Be a contributor to your society. You want heat out of the, the, the stove, uh, you know, or the fireplace, put in logs. You know, it just, it, 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 you don't have an entitlement attitude. Uh, you know, do you have a checklist of like to know, like, do you have your own checklist to know a giver from a taker? Well, here's what I would say with that, because of my book, what's in it for them, uh, at the end of every chapter, the written version, I actually have dominoes and, uh, and I think of things through what are the, how, how can I be a domino to other people? Uh, cause every one of us, you know, if you, if I asked you, what is a book or a person or an event? that was a positive domino to you, that you read a book or you talked to someone or you had something happen that entirely changed your perspective, your understanding, put you on a path of what you do today that has been very beneficial, that helped you with your health when you or your health was not so great. What are the dominoes? And so I always look for dominoes. And so I list at the end of every chapter of what's in it for them, domino exercises. And I actually have lessons that I've like, you know, people wanted to learn, what did I get out of my sabbatical? So I set up joesabbatical.com and I set it up before I went on a sabbatical because I didn't want people asking me what was I going to do for my sabbatical because I didn't have a plan for it. What I knew is I didn't want, it wasn't an outward journey of going and traveling someplace. We're in the middle of a damn pandemic. It wasn't sitting in a hammock and relaxing. It was an inward journey. I didn't want to go outward. I wanted to go inward. I wanted to smoke out every part of me that required external validation to feel okay with myself because if no one's around i can be connected and i can be surrounded by people and feel very lonely why what is that what that wasn't coming from the outside that was coming from the inside so the things that you know as far as a checklist physical health i mean you, you got to have some sort of practice uh, if anything I've said re resonates with anyone related to addiction recovery, if you need help, just go to Genius Recovery. Uh, there's nothing for sale there. It's free. And uh, it's educational stuff. You can watch interviews with Gabor Mate. You can watch uh, interviews I've done with really brilliant minds. You can read the Ken Wells blog. You can uh, There's links to every sort of type of addiction recovery meeting that, you, that a person can find worldwide. Uh, it may not have every listing of where they're at, but I'll have the main categories of where people can go find, uh, you know, meetings. And we're working on putting together recovery kits. Uh, that, that'll be one of our next projects. Uh, I'm funding a three-year research study on connection and addiction with Stanford with uh, Professor B.J. Fogg, who's one of his students uh, created Instagram. You know, so B.J., uh, one of his students uh, put the, made the movie The Social Dilemma. Uh, you know, so BJ's a brilliant guy. And so we're, we're working to find how to take young people that are disconnected and struggling and find what helps them with connection and whatever we find in that research, we want to share it with the world for free, you know? So, so one of the ways that people can help their community and help themselves is think of the dominoes in your life. Who are the people that have been the most significant 
Tell them thank you. Spend more time with them. Hang out with them. Be the person you want to answer the phone for. I say this as a test. Look at the next 10 calls or text messages or social media, whatever direct messages come to you and say, do I feel woo when this person calls or do I feel ah? And why, why do you feel woo for one person and ah for another? And I'll, I'll always caution people, if you owe somebody money, they're not the asshole. You, you need to pay them the money back if that's the case. So, or at least apologize or, or, or say, I know I owe you money, but I will, I'm doing my best. Don't ignore things. Uh, you know, rotting food in a refrigerator doesn't get better with age. It gets worse. So be a easy, lucrative and fun person. And if money's not involved, be an easy, liberating and fun person. Okay. Cause I use elf versus half. Am I being elf or am I being hard, annoying, lame and frustrating or hard, annoying, lucrative and frustrating? Don't do things that eat at your soul. Uh, you know, if, if you, we all want something, you know, every person listening to this wants something inside awareness, entertainment, whatever. Uh, I'm going to want lunch here in a little bit, uh, based on where I'm at. And I think you, you need to go to bed soon. I think cause based on the time it's <laughs> here, but, but Joe, most people are, most people are takers, Joe. Well, in some don't you, categories. Don't you agree? Well, in, don't you agree that most people are takers? I think, uh, I think they're not. They're not really. They're not givers until they want something. They're mainly takers. Uh, well, here's the thing. I have no way of knowing how to look at the sea of humanity and know out of all of them what their atmosphere, condition, or life situations are that would cause one person to be a, a giver, a taker, or a, like. Let's take the categories of toxic people. Uh, narcissists, um, sociopaths, psychopaths, people that are, you know, most narcissism, and I've interviewed, you know, Romani Dervasala, who's one of the world's top narcissist experts. She's a good friend of mine. Uh, most narcissism comes from pain and trauma, and it manifests itself that way. Uh, I don't believe most children are born uh, and they instantly become a parasitical, selfish taker. I think their environment, uh, that's what's so dangerous about, you know, what we're witnessing in many parts of the world right now is you have some of the most narcissistic, psychopathic, empathy lacking leaders that are, yes, you know, in high positions, making money and having high status. And then people become hopeless because they're like, why be a giver? Why be this nice person when I see these assholes over here making all this money, getting all this advantage but I'll tell you, I believe in karma and some people's purpose in life. Everyone has a purpose in life and some people's purpose in life is to serve as a bad example and be able to make the distinction between who's being an asshole and who isn't. And so we all want something. So make sure that your give is equal to or greater than your want. And that's how you get people to like you, want to associate with you and you feel good about it. See, the, the worst thing about being a taker is you have to keep this con job going in your in your head of, oh, if I can just convince people, there's a lot of people that sound really sweet and really nice, but look at who they are, like who becomes a dear friend of mine, inner circle friend of mine. You can build rapport with someone relatively quickly. Trust takes a little bit longer. And there are people that you don't even find out till oftentimes years later that they're kind of scummy humans or outright just massive takers and, and and narcissists are really good at fooling people uh sociopaths uh, you know at least the smart ones because there's dumb ones too um but the, the 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 thing is is that you know who becomes an 
an inner circle part of my life. As I look at people that are more powerful, how do they treat people that are less powerful than them? Are they courteous? Do they say thank you when someone holds a door open? Uh, are they nice to everyone above them that they want to curry favor with and they're real mean to their staff or, you know, they, they talk down at people? You know, it's like I want people that have situational behavior, but not situational ethics. And what I mean by that is you can tell dirty jokes with some of your friends that, you know, but you're not going to do that maybe to someone's grandma that you just met. I mean, there's that's smart. That's not making you a good or bad person. What makes something good or bad is if you have situational ethics where you try to act like you're a really in integrous person while you're scamming someone on the side. So like, you know, I tell this story like back in the day when people would go up to movie theaters with cash and many people buy tickets for movies online now. Right. And they never even interact with hardly anyone. Totally. Yeah. It's changed so much. Yeah. No. Like, yeah. People talking in store, but you know, it's, it's what I tell the story about a, you know, a, a father with his, uh, you know, 12 year old and 13 year old son in this movie theater, the adult is 13 years old and children are, you know, 12 and under. Right. And the father goes up with his, you know, 12 and 13 year old son and uh, says, I'd like, you know, uh, two adult tickets and one child. And the guy behind the counter is like, well, how old's your son? He's like 13. He's like, well, sir, you could have got two, you know, tickets for children and, and got a discount because I wouldn't have known that he was 13 years old. He goes, well, you, you wouldn't have known, but he would have known. And that's the key. You know, you don't don't freaking steal. Even if you can get away, yeah. what's the, because every time you steal from others, every time you lie and look, yeah. I mean, lying's a difficult thing. You know, Jordan Peterson, who I've met recently, you know, he's, I like what he says about lying. He's, you know, one of the chapters of his book is, you know, it, it, he talks about this where it's like, don't, uh, you know, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Right. So and oftentimes we lie by omission. You know, we, we try to make someone out to be better or worse than they actually are. Or we're giving our frame a rest for it. And, you know, look, humans are just trying to get through life, trying to do the best they can. Give them but also we lie because we don't want people to feel pain. And sometimes we don't want to offend. So we lie. So there's various different degrees to lying. But do you do you think a lie is just a lie or do you think there's degrees to lying and some are harm, harmless? Well, yeah, that, we, we could spend, you know, that's one of those complex questions where, <laughs> like, if you're, you know, Nazi Germany, you're hiding, you know, you're hiding someone that they want to <laughs> find and kill uh, in your basement. Do you tell the truth and say, oh, yeah, they're that. Well, yeah. <laughs> you have to make that sort of decision. And uh, I have a Genius Network member who named Lisa Sini, and she builds uh, really uh, conscious assisted living homes. Uh, and she gave a 10 minute talk at Genius Network. Uh, you know, if you love me, lie to me. And it's where, and it was a really weird reaction. Like half the people are like, what the hell is this going to be about? And her whole thing with there's certain people that are dying in assisted living homes that have dementia that you almost yeah. need to treat like children. And if you tell them the direness of their condition, you will take all of the joy out of them. So in that particular case, you don't. Yeah. And it was really interesting to hear her framing because she sold most of the people on it as a good concept, but there were a couple of people there that's like, man, I don't, I have to really think about this one, but it was, it's, and, and here's the thing, like, and I'll go back to Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson says some questions you can't just easily answer. Some questions take hours to answer. Some take weeks, some take years, some take generations. There are some questions, even some 
that you asked me today that, you know, I don't know if I gave the best answers to, but I do my best to try to contemplate them. And, and, and at the end of the day, I think you'll, uh, you'll accomplish more through moving in a conscious direction. You know, one of the best ways to progress is to understand that all the pain and all of the difficulties in your life are actually the raw ingredients to have a better life. You know, my friend Dan Sullivan says, you know, the, all the obstacles that seem to oppose our goals are actually the raw material for achieving them. Uh, almost every breakthrough that we're going to have in life is going to come out of an area of life that does not work. Uh, what I'll say to entrepreneurs all the time, look at the business that you're in. Look at what is a business? A business is selling problem, uh, solving, selling, solving problems for a profit. Some people are in the business of selling problems, which makes them what I don't consider good entrepreneurs. Uh, so all of the problems in the world, all of the pain, all of the suffering on a personal level, that's life's greatest teacher. That's life's way of saying, hey, find someone else who's in pain. Think about what's in it for them approach them with that question, not what's in it for you. If you approach people with one in it for them, genuinely, not superficially, not bullshit flattery, even though flattery works, it's like cotton candy. It's not real nutrition. So approaching people with what's in it for them and being genuine about it is where you'll get real friends, not deal friends. And a lot of people, their whole life is just deal friends because they're always in deal mode. They're always in like hustling, right? And yeah, there's a time where you hustle. There's a time where you sell. I mean, of course, you know, you're, you're going to, and when I say hustle, let me define that. I don't, I don't mean hustling by conning people. I mean, just working with hard work. Yeah. Now, if that's your whole modus operandi, you're going to burn yourself out. I mean, it's only a matter of time and, and you can go for a long time. Uh, but, you know, pe people that really burn themselves out, they, they just are not noticing all of the pain they're numbing it. And that's when people get mired in addiction because they are ignoring the pain signals and they keep trying to numb it. They keep trying to numb it and they find an alternative way to do it. So if you, if you go through life with the intention of noticing all the problems in the world are your greatest opportunities for yourself and others, wherever there's anxiety, there's opportunity. And if, and if you can solve problems for a profit, you can not only change a lot of lives, you can make a lot of money. And so people wake up and they're like, you know, I want to not have any problems in my life. Well, that's bullshit and delusional because, you, you know, what I've learned about success, the things that would have killed me when I was a dead broke carpet cleaner living off credit cards, which is where I started. And I had two years of massive suffering, went deeply into debt. I was just, you know, recently sober from doing drugs. I still had not dealt with the underlying traumas. So I still went in, you know, I spent many years in sexual addiction and I, uh, you know, didn't say anything about it. And I had a ton of shame and I figured out how to make money. Uh, and I was a millionaire before the age of 30 and all of that sort of stuff, but I was still in constant pain and angst. And I now look back at all of that and saying, you know what, it never made sense to me when people in, in 12 step groups would say, you know, uh, your addiction is a gift. And if you if you get through and you do the work, you'll realize that it's it, the gifts of recovery. And I'm like, the gifts of recovery. How on earth could all of this bullshit be a gift? And I actually understand what that means now, because I would not have the compassion or the empathy or the things that I do now. If I would have had a great childhood. Uh, maybe it would have been better, uh, but I can't go back and change the past. I wish I could. If I could, I would have not had those things happen to me. But now I don't want, uh, it's like you will not regret the past or wish to shut a door on it. I don't any longer. 
I actually like the person I am. And in many cases, I love the person I am. And I didn't have that for most of my life. And that came from just sticking with it, doing a lot of work, showing up and finding people who believed in me more than I believed in myself. And those people are out there, but only if you get your foot out the door. The heaviest weight you're going to lift is the, the, the front door sometimes. And the heaviest thing you're going to do is pick up the phone and call somebody and just say, I'm struggling. I need help. And you seek out and find people and you will and if you don't have any friends or anyone right now and you feel utterly alone go to a 12-step group uh, go to a support group they're out there all over the place and if you're in a small town small location happen to live in a country where there's a dictator you know if you can at least get online and even if you're in a situation like that uh, all i can say is that you know the sun is there there's a lot of clouds and uh if you can at least just you know appreciate the fact that you've got vision if you can see hearing if you can hear the ability to talk if you can talk those are tools if you can walk and use your hands i'll say to entrepreneurs the young people i'll be in uh, i did it i did this a couple weeks ago i was in a room of the top 10 percent of the most successful real estate agents in canada by a guy named richard robbins who he has a, a big coaching group and I said, let me share something that I usually share with young entrepreneurs that are just trying to build and grow a business. Anyone here in the room worth a million dollars? A whole bunch of hands went up because there's a lot of successful people in that room. Anyone here worth, you know, five million? You know, a few hands. Anyone 10 million or more? Hands go up. I go, uh, but there's a lot of people who didn't raise their hands. They weren't millionaires. And I said, how many of you here would like me to give you a million dollars? You know, a bunch of hands go up. I'm like, okay, anyone here be willing to pluck out one of your eyeballs for a million dollars? And one person jokingly is like, yeah, I'll do it. I go, you really would. I, I said, you're fucking crazy. This is the first time I've had someone do that. And, and, and they're like, you know, no, they're not going to. And and then uh, I said, anyone, you know, pluck out an eyeball for $5 million, $10 million? No one's raising their hand. I go, anyone cut off one of your legs for $50 million? I go, think about it. So y'all want to be worth a million dollars. And I said it as a trick. But you already have something you wouldn't trade a million dollars for. It's called your vision. It's called your ability to talk. Your ability to walk. Do you know how many people that don't have those things that are laid up in a hospital bed? It would be a dream come true. Don't take it for granted. When you think your life sucks, it really doesn't suck depending on how you, the perspective you have. Yeah. And if you're a woman that's in a relationship with someone beating you, and I've had lots of conversation with women, women that are in abusive relationships, it, it, it's work. You have to unravel it. You are oftentimes in danger. You have to go through toxic narcissist and deal with people that are really traumatized that are taking their pain on other people there are difficult life challenges however there's always hope the sun is always there and sometimes what seems like the worst thing find the dominoes be the domino you know be the you know be the person uh, as much as you can to resource yourself when you don't have any hope find someone that has hope for you hope is a tricky thing hope used in the right way heals false hope is really destructive you know there are people that use hope to manipulate and they lie so you got to take all of this in context but the thing is is like you know we we are uh, the most important asset in our own lives take care of the app you have invest it wisely don't squander it remove yourself as much as you can from toxic people and just it's a little bit every day consistency is more important than having a grand master you know, change. I mean, just a little bit, you know, a little bit of exercise, little, 
If you have trouble meditating, start for 30 seconds or a minute a day. Do cold plunges. If you feel shitty, take a cold shower. You'll get a 200% dopamine increase. If you, you know, people like, what do you do? I mean, you asked me to, you know, shoot a video. I I did a couple minutes today just driving, but I will, um, you know. I can't wait to get it. I'll I'll, I'll record some things and and some of it, it might just be me talking about things that I do. Perfect. That's fine. Yeah. You know, I, um, you talk a lot about hanging out with just uh, the givers and really like really trying to omit the takers from your life. Now, tr- this is like, I've been curious about this. So throughout your journey, like have there been any significant relationship or mentors that have really played this, this like crucial role in shaping your personal and professional development? It could be anyone recent. It could be during your journey, like, people that you really feel have really created that massive impact as a mentor in your life. Yeah. I mean, most of it was business stuff. Most of my mentors early on were like through audio programs, um, Earl Nightingale, you know, who, uh, one of my favorite audio programs is, uh, lead the field. Uh, that was recorded years ago. It's funny because I've, you know, recently interviewed Earl Nightingale's wife. Um, and I, I created a program for Nightingale Conant, which was, uh, in 2004. And I, it was the, uh, number one selling marketing program of all time for Nightingale Conant, which is now has all of their information licensed to Audible, which people can listen to my marketing program there if they wanted to, even though it was recorded, you know, damn near 20 years ago. Uh, So Dan Sullivan, who I do the 10X Talk podcast with, he's a founder of Strategic Coach. He's been very instrumental and I've been pretty instrumental to to him too. It's kind of cool. It's like when people that you really help uh, that have helped you, you, you're able to help them. Uh, for marketing, I learned marketing from a crazy guy named Gary Halbert, uh, who, who was awesome. Uh, Dave Kekich, who's passed away. Sean Stevenson, who passed away. My friend, Dr. Janice Dorn, who was a really wonderful human who uh, had a double PhD, uh, was a world-class psychiatrist who became addicted to Demerol and became a really just bad addict. And uh, she was found uh, with a broken jaw a week later laying on her bathroom floor uh 73 pounds and she still survived and wow. you know and it was this i mean talk about just being on the absolute brink of death and being able to come out of that situation and so she was instrumental uh she was a great coach for me for many years and then um, i was her um, caretaker when she was dying a few years ago with her friend Lisa. So it's, it's interesting how life changes. So, so oftentimes the people that take care of you, you end up taking care of them. So uh, most of my mentors and stuff came through books and stuff, but yeah, those are a handful of the people. And I do my best to acknowledge uh, those people and carry on their work and their lessons. Uh, Cause three ways to learn something. And this is probably nothing new to you, Mary. Uh, I'll just say it for the, you know, the people that are listening is, one way to learn something is you go through the school of hard knocks. You just go and get beat up and you get bloodied and you bumble your way through life and you'll figure some stuff out and you'll have a lot of pain in the process, but you'll learn shit. A second way to learn is you learn through the experiences of other people. You read their books, you listen to their podcasts, you go to their seminars, you seek them out, you develop you know, genuine relationships. You don't just say, can I pick your brain? That's like asking someone to pick their pocket. Uh, what you want to do is you want to offer something for value in exchange for them sharing things and you pay attention and you implement it. Cause there's that Emerson quote, I think it is where people ask for a new idea when they haven't used the first one that I gave you. And so when someone offers you advice or opportunity, 
utilize it. Don't use people, utilize people. I don't want to be used. No one wants to be used. I want to be utilized. And so you uh, learn through the experiences of other people. And then the third and most effective way to learn is you teach other people. Because once you learn something, you share it with other people, which is different than plagiarizing someone's work. It's sharing what it is you learned, citing, acknowledging people uh, for it. And, and here's one thing that I find kind of funny is that a lot of my male friends, some that are very famous uh, uh, because of their followings uh, online, uh, the ones that, uh, you know, it's mostly men, but it is some women too, uh, when they have not dealt with their shit, what a lot of them do is they start a podcast <laughs> and they they somehow think that starting a podcast is the same as doing the deep work and it, it is helpful because when you do a podcast but it's super helpful it's super helpful because you like listen to all of these people who really dealt with a lot of shit yeah and and you, know? no, you learn you grow it's, you it's, grow it's a good it's a good way to do it and i always say to people is when you're listening to stuff and when you're doing stuff there is stuff that is your own work that the world never sees and you might be crying in your arms and you might be, you know, have your, you know, drooling and, you know, your nose running and all kinds of stuff. But there is a time where you, if you have a lot of pain, uh, you process it and you deal with it. And if you do that and you make a, you make that part of your life, you will become more compassionate. You will become more empathetic, not just to others, but yourself. And forgiveness is a tricky word. You know, my favorite, uh, my favorite way to think about forgiveness is forgiveness is giving up the hope that one day you're going to have a better past. So all of the shit that happened to you in your past is just the R&D experiment that life served you. You're not going to go back and change it. Uh, what you, you're either winning or you're learning. What you can do is you can take the, the lessons uh, from the past, the past you know, comparison is an interesting thing. It's how you compare, you know, Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan wrote a book called the gap in the game. And, you know, people are like, well, I want to reach my potential. Well, potential means you just haven't done it yet. Everybody has potential, uh, but some people actually reach it. So the, the way that I think about it is that, you know, your past has given you, uh, if you compare like what you don't have to what other people have, that you think is better than what you have, you're going to be miserable. But if you compare what you do have, like I have my vision, I have my ability to walk, I have my ability to talk. I have maybe even if you only have a, one or two friends, you know, some people have many friends, other people are super lonely. Some people have been single and isolated for a long time. But you know, it's, it's with that where you're like, okay, this was stage one of my life. Now it's time to go to stage two and latch on to something or someone that can help get you to that, even if you feel incredibly unmotivated. Like one one of the things, um, you know, I like recommending certain books. Um, my favorite book uh, that I've referred more than any other book is by my my friend uh, Stephen Pressfield. He wrote a book called The War of Art, and uh, you know that's great. It's about resistance. And whenever someone's like, "How do I?" I tell him, "Read The War of Art. Watch my." you know, my YouTube uh, interview with me and Dan Solomon and Stephen Pressfield. Uh, th that's really great. Uh, the dopamine nation, you know, if you, Dr. Anna Lemke, who's actually going to be coming to my genius network annual event this year, 
Um, I also have somebody who's coming. I, can't, I won't announce who it is yet, but I have someone who's going to be running for uh, president of the United States coming to my annual event this upcoming year. So um, we'll see if they win or not. That's cool. But yeah, yeah I, I've I've smart people that come to my events. There, it's that's if they're, I have this shirt that says you know genius uh, network on it. Uh, I am not a genius. If there's anything smart that I've done, I just bring geniuses together and let them talk, meet each other and stuff. So I I, I really run connection networks which is funny because I was one of the most disconnected, shy, introverted kids. And, uh, you know, here I... That's what makes your story so incredible is because that's where you came from and this is who you are today. So that's the reason why it's amazing. Yeah, well, and I, and I hope that I can let people know that there's there's nothing unique about this that I think a lot of people, if not most people, have the ability to be deeper connected. And I, I don't want any of this to be like I have some sort of special thing. I mean, uh, that other that that's, I think everyone and I know uh, and I believe in my soul that everyone can uh, make pretty, pretty big improvements and can change their life and stuff. So I was going to say, so Dopamine Nation. So Anna Lemke, I've got her coming to my event. And she wrote, uh, she's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. She's been on Andrew Huberman. She's very smart. And I'm going to be interviewing her at, at my event. And what I've learned for, through her is that we are dopamine seeking creatures. And if you take yes, dopamine out of a rat that is starving and put the rat or the mouse in front of food, it won't even, it doesn't even have the motivation to eat it. It will just simply starve to death. So, so much of what we're doing is biochemical and that's where food and nutrition and fitness and fixing your gut and exercise and flow and connection and community, all these things play into this. And, and, uh, you know, the cold plunges and, uh, saunas have become a big thing. Wim Hof has popularized it more than probably anyone. And I've got James Nestor who wrote the book breath is a good friend of mine and, um, breathing cold therapy, heat therapy. Most of these things are very little cost. Uh, it, you know, if you don't have a cold plunge, you can take cold showers. Uh, you can do a lot of physical exercise that will heat up your body. But uh, I started cold plunging and doing saunas. Uh, it was at the end of uh, 2021. Uh, uh, and so there is nothing in the last 10 years that has done more to help me with anxiety than freaking cold therapy. And I hated it. I used to hate the cold and i live in arizona and right now it's over 108 degrees out right now how long are you doing it for how long can you survive in there oh well i, mean, well, I don't try to see how long i could survive but the longest i've been in uh you know 40 uh, 40 degrees is uh, 13 minutes uh but you know i'll do uh I, I have a video on my instagram of me and talking totally normal in a tub which we have the temperature 32 degrees totally freezing that's, that's pretty it's pretty good it's pretty good and and I never thought I'd be able to do that, but it's not that you can't do it. It's you become heat adapted and cold adapted. And so the reason I bring that up and I'm not, you know, it's almost gotten to the point where it's trendy. I, I remember reading something online. It's like, I'm getting so sick of hearing all these people talk about cold plunging or saunas or heat, like, like try being homeless. Like I was for a period of time. You'll, you'll know what cold and heat is like. Yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but at the same time, there's all these little things that can change the biochemistry. And when you, chocolate is a 55% increase in dopamine, uh, sex is 150%, uh, cold plunges are 200%, cocaine is 225%, uh, methamphetamines is a thousand percent dopamine hit. It makes sense why people do drugs and drink alcohol and stare at the internet. So when you're staring at a phone, which actually I have a team meeting in like a, a few minutes here. So, but, uh, 
you know, when you're staring at a phone, you're getting a constant dopamine hit. So whatever you do in your life, find healthy forms of, you know, getting into a flow state and biochemistry. And there's a lot of things that you might be like, I can never do that. I can never do that. And I'm like, you know what? You're probably scared and that's okay. And you've probably not done it before, but there's all kinds of ways to learn stuff. Breathing, meditation, any sort of somatic therapy. I, I have one of my genius network members. I got her doing yoga every day for like going on three weeks now. And she, she's like, it's transformed her life. I mean, she's like, I never would have thought. And I tried it before, but I didn't really like it. I found a, I went onto an app that in America, you know, called Mind Body, and I found a studio that was close to her. And I said, consistently do it. And uh, it's like gyms work, breathing works, all these things work. Uh, you might have to take different approaches. You know, you got to understand there's a lot to learn, but keep learning, keep growing, keep applying, be a giver. So you're 55 now, right? That is correct. And you have never been married and you've never had any children. Mm -hmm. Correct? Correct. Now, I feel like when we get a wound yeah. and it heals well, and I'm then it becomes a scar and then it becomes a scar, it never really heals. So I just wanted to know from you, like, do you think that this has anything to do with your past experiences or is it mainly a personal choice that you never had children or were never married? Well, one of my biggest regrets was not having children. I actually raised a child for a year uh, and I found out through um, a DNA test five days before uh, this, this child's first birthday that I was, while I was pursuing sole custody, that I was not the biological father. And that was uh, yes. in 1998. And that threw me into a world of addiction and promiscuity and the only thing that made the pain go away, but I didn't know who to trust because I felt completely betrayed and I was a total mess and it completely turned my life into a bit of a Jerry Springer show for a period of time. Uh, but now I've reacquainted myself years later with that, who's now a young man, this person, and uh, doing my best to mentor him. Uh, and it's amazing how one of the most, the most painful thing in my life at that time and absolutely that that had a lot to do with having kids and getting married and um but you know i mean uh, i could regret it or i can be like it's just you know it's just was my life and what happened i now have a wonderful amazing loving um beautiful partner who's just a great human and um, my best friend and so uh I have a lot of, I have a lot of uh, clients that I think are like children. So that, that's another thing too. But <laughs> I, I think I feel the same too. I feel the same. <laughs> there's, there's, there's definitely moments of sadness. There's definitely moments of, I wish this, I wish that, but you know, it's like, look, I have a blessed life. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff too. There, yeah. There's nothing's, nothing's perfect. And you know, you got to play it where it lies uh, sort of thing. And uh, you know, it's, it's just all part of the life journey. I mean, it, it's just, it's all part of the life journey and I'm, I'm able to take away a lot from it and I have to find other forms of uh, connection and I can make a lot of married jokes to my married friends. I'll sell, tell people, you know, yeah. the number one cause of, uh, of divorce. Uh, and they'll be like, well, what's not in the finances, you know, I'm like, no marriage. That's not no. Divorce. <laughs> yeah. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you would say that. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. So yeah, I, I grapple with it every once in a while, but for the most part, uh, 
I wouldn't want to be anyone else. I wouldn't want anyone else's life. And there was a period of time where I didn't want my life. I, I didn't like it. I hated it. I felt out of control. And I'll tell you, you know, if you do the work, uh, and when I say do the work, you're going to work harder not doing the work than doing the work. It's not that there's going to be yeah. suffering or not. It's like Dan Sullivan says, there's two types of suffering in the world, short term or long term. You just decide which one you want. And, uh, you know, short term suffering. And I don't like working out. I like the results of working out. I don't like always eating clean, but I like the results of eating clean. Right. And so that's life has this very interesting way of rewarding how you operate on a karmic level. And so uh, you can look at other people's lives and you can waste that energy wishing you looked a certain way, had a certain thing, or you can just go about, uh, we have way more ability to design uh, a wonderful life than we often give ourselves credit for. It is amazing the amount of stuff that a person can do if they just spend a little bit of time each day resourcing themselves and learning a little bit more, applying a little bit more and, and letting, you know, avoiding the kryptonites that are in their life and taking care of the million dollar racehorse. Let me, let me say this is the last thing we'll talk about because people tend to like this one and I, I use it not as a seminar speech, but as a way of, of doing my life, which is um, if you had, a, if you had a racehorse and it was, uh, you know, running in races that, you know, you would win, uh, not to be confused with gambling addiction. So you had a, a racehorse, uh, and every time the horse ran a race and won, you'd make a million dollars. It was a million dollar racehorse. The question is, how would you treat that horse? You would, um, well, what would you do? You'd have the best food, the best nutrition, the best training. You would give that horse rest and relaxation. You would have that horse in the right races. Uh, what would you not do? You wouldn't overtrain the horse. You wouldn't have the horse up till 3 a.m. watching porn and you know, snorting crystal meth and smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol. You wouldn't have the horse hanging out with other negative losers. You wouldn't have the horse running on a track that was, you know, filled with broken glass and obstacles that made no sense. You would uh, not have the horse uh, in the wrong races. You know, you never win a race you don't want to be in, which is something my friend Nick Peterson says. So some games in life, the only way you win is you don't play. You would be very discerning about how that horse uh, is taken care of, who that horse is around, what are the trainers. So the punchline here is you're the million dollar racehorse. You, you know, if you treat yourself like garbage, you're going to get garbage results. If you treat yourself like the million dollar racehorse, you're going to start winning some races. And if you become that type of way to yourself, other people will notice you will become more attractive. You will, you, you want to change the world, start with one person then maybe two, then maybe five, and then maybe 10. You know, if you want to start a YouTube channel or a podcast, it's going to start slowly. But if you're consistent and you stay at it and you're very intentional uh, and you, you know, don't lie, uh, you know, don't mislead people, uh, honor and keep your word, do the best you can. You, maybe you're not going to be perfect, but live that way. Be the million dollar racehorse. Life is going to be better and treat other people that are million dollar racehorses that way also and uh deal with your shit if you got any trauma and stuff and if you know and if there's anything that 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 i put out into the world that's helpful if, you know i know we've spent mo like most of my business world is teaching people marketing and positioning 
and the ethical use of influence and persuasion. I mean, I run one of the highest level marketing groups in the world. We talked hardly about any of that stuff. And that's fine because I would rather people take away, uh, you know, whatever life issues they're dealing with, friends and family, deal with that. I mean, if you, you know, that comes first before any, you know, your health, mental and physical is way more important than making money. As a matter of fact, you're going to be handicapped for making money if you're constantly feeling like dog shit. And even if you have a lot of money, uh, and I don't poo-poo money. I love money. People say money can't buy happiness. I buy happiness all the time. You know, people that say money can't buy happiness, they haven't given enough of it away. So if, if, if you know, if anyone wants, like most of the stuff I have that benefits people, I don't even charge for. My podcast, joesfreebook.com. I give away a book called Life Gives to the Giver. They can download that for free. I have a movie that's been put out, someone made about my life called Connected, the Joe Polish story. They can find it. That was a pretty good movie. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, so that's sort of my... That's a really good uh, takeaway uh, to end the podcast. And so thank you so much, Joe. Uh, you know, I'm sure our listeners got so much out of that just from a perspective of, you know, there's there, there are two ways to go to what we sit down and have conversations with people, right? There's always the, the, the business side of it, the success side of it. But I think aside from all of these amazing things that people end up doing to where they I think the, the fundamental points of that is where did they come from? And because that can be serve as an inspiration for a lot of people out there who really want the lives that they look at on the outside and they think that they're in this deep hole and they can't get out of it. But then, you know, speaking to people like yourself and hearing about your story and how you've managed to really change your life 360 really serves as a, an inspiration to a lot of people who think that they can't get out of whatever they're in. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. well, good. And I, and I, and, and I, and I appreciate it. And I do hope uh, anything I've said is helpful. And I always like saying to people today is the last day of the way you used to be. If you don't like the way you've been in the past, or at least some parts of it. And if you love who you are, just keep doing more of it, you know, cause success is getting on track, staying on track and you're going to go off track. And we all know this, you know, sometimes you're in great physical health and you get sick or you, you know, you just quit doing some of the things you do. So part of it is I, I don't think like success is if you're doing certain things and it's not anyone's job to tell you what success is. It's your job to develop your own philosophies in your own way and adhering to it. And you know that, you know, if you can really feel yourself, what expands you versus what contracts you and do the things that expand other people and don't do the things that contract other people. And you're not going to vibe with everyone. Everyone has their people. There's some people you get along with and you kind of have shared values and there's others that you don't. And that's okay. You know, the, 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 you, don't need, you don't need to make sure everyone's happy. Uh, the, the main thing is to make sure that you are doing the best job that you can do and keep doing it. And so I appreciate it, Mary, and I hope this was uh, useful. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching this episode. I really hope that it added a lot of value to your life. Please like, subscribe, and share this to as many individuals that you think might impact their lives too. See you in the next episode.